Sarah Levin is the senior legislative representative for the Secular Coalition for America, a lobbying group in Washington, D.C., representing non-religious people on Capitol Hill. She graduated from American University with a degree in international studies, focusing on the Middle East and Israeli domestic politics. And I really wanted to talk to her because uh, I think it's been a rough week for a lot of people, especially if you're an atheist and you care about a lot of progressive issues. And and she knows what she's talking about. So, Sarah, let me start off by just saying, uh, console me. Is there is there anything good I can take from what happened on Tuesday? And we can get into details in a bit. But I mean, what should I be thinking right now? Yes. Well, there actually are a few things uh, that I can say that will lighten your spirits. First of all, not once, but twice on Tuesday night when issues that our community care about were on the ballot, we won and the religious right loss. And when I'm talking about our ballot initiatives, um, so first of all, in Colorado, which by the way, was a swing state, uh, where two thirds of voters, 66%, supported the End of Life Options Act. That was a major victory. Um, That was a ballot initiative that legalized the aid in in dying for the terminally ill. Um, And this is despite millions of dollars spent by religious groups opposing the measure. So I think that's definitely something to celebrate. So this ballot Um, initiative basically (laughs) says if you are terminally ill and you want to end your own life now, I mean, I'm sure there's some more rules behind that. But that's a legal thing you can ask for now. No one's going to be punished if a doctor helps you with that, something like that. Exactly. So generally, um, death with dignity, they're sometimes called aid and dying, sometimes death with dignity. And then you also get end of life options act. Um, those are kind of the different, you know, uh, names of the bills you'll see in, in different States. Um, and so death with dignity, generally all of the bills are modeled from the Oregon bill, which was the first state to legalize death with dignity. They, they have some variations, um, but generally they, they're modeled from Oregon and, uh, what the base of a death with dignity bill, a model death with dignity bill, are that to qualify, you do have to be terminally ill with six months or less to live. It is very, very, very narrow. You have to go to um, have your diagnosis confirmed by uh, two different doctors, um, and you have to, uh, there's a a process. You have to jump through a lot of hoops. So if I'm just generally depressed or something, this is not a... Oh, your life is pretty bad right now. We're going to help you end it. That's not what's going on here. No, not at all. Uh, and that's what the opposition likes to say. They spread a lot of fear and misinformation around around dignity bills when the reality is that they are incredibly narrow. I mean, if you know, it, it's only for people who are terminally ill. It doesn't apply to people with disabilities or chronic uh, diseases. It doesn't apply to people who are depressed. In fact, you could be terminally ill, but if you are found uh, when you have your uh, a mental evaluation, a mental health evaluation that you are uh, you you are considered by the doctor not to be in a state of mind to be making this kind of decision, that can be enough to disqualify you even if you are terminally ill. So lots Um, of hurdles to overcome if you want to even take advantage of this. But that is, I mean, it's putting your own life in your hands, which is why I think a lot of progressives support it. Right. And it's something that uh, the biggest opposition to Death with Dignity and the organization that has put the most money into fighting it through its uh, lobbying expenditures and, um, you know, buying up media ads to kind of spread misinformation is the Catholic Church. Um, and that's because, you know, it, it, it contradicts their dogma of, um, you know, life, their kind of pro-life stance, uh, as far as, you know, you, you should never end a life, uh, whether it's, you know, an unborn fetus or, you know, an adult, you know, they, they, had, they have a religious belief against it, which is we, fine. We um, spoke what we, with someone on the podcast recently who talked about how in Canada, uh, you know, the Catholic church opposed it there too, where it's more accepted, at least in certain provinces. Um, I think maybe the, the entire nation, but one of the arguments that I heard from the critics of the Catholic churches, yes, they're pro-life and they want, you know, your life to be in God's hands. You don't get to decide when you die, but aren't they just prolonging some people's suffering? And how is that ethical, even by Catholic standards? 
Well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, um, besides the fact we could talk about whether it's ethical or not. I certainly don't think it's ethical, but the real point is that it, there is, it is not appropriate for them to be imposing their religious beliefs about right. life on everybody else because they don't speak. They don't even speak for all Catholics. I'm sure right. there are Catholics right. out there who would want this option. There are people of faith. You know, when I went to the lobby day, uh, for the D.C. Death with Dignity Bill, I was there lobbying for the bill with United Church of Christ reverends um, who were there to say that, you know, they support this as an option. You know, there were religious leaders there. The Catholic Church, you know, does not speak for all people of faith and certainly not for uh, non-religious people. Um, And, you know, it's, they don't, it's not appropriate and it shouldn't, it shouldn't be uh, considered when debating, you know, the pros and cons of this bill, you know, if it happens to offend the sensitivities of, uh, you know, the Catholic Church. Sure. So it passed and, in Colorado. Where else did it pass? Or was that the only state? So um, that's the only state that had it as a ballot initiative this year. Um, it recently, um, so uh, it's legal in five states, uh, Oregon being the first. And last year, uh, was, uh, when California passed it and it went into effect this year and the secular coalition for California was proud to be part of the coalition that did, uh, advocate for its passage. And just, uh, was it November 5th or 6th? It was just a few weeks ago. Um, the DC council, uh, had its first vote on the Death with Dignity Act uh, before the full council. They have a final vote on November 15th. It passed 11 to 2, um, which means that uh, assuming the votes don't change, which they probably will not on November 15th, it's just a procedural second vote, um, it is a veto-proof majority. Yeah. Uh, so we don't know what the mayor is going to do with it, but my, I, I am very optimistic that the Death of Dignity Act in D.C., which we have been very active in uh, lobbying for in the D.C. Council, um, is going to pass. And that's going to be very interesting because D.C. Um, uh, if, if is uh, under home rule, uh, which means it, it's not a state. So it is under the jurisdiction of the federal government. So that means whenever D.C. passes a, a law called an act, um, it's not actually law until um, it goes through Congress. And Congress has the opportunity uh, either 30 days or 60 days, depending on if it's uh, if it's amending the criminal statute, then it's 60 days. Um, Congress can ab- adopt a joint resolution to overrule any act that... Um, DD passes, uh, which is a very sore point for obviously council members. Uh, and, uh, there, there's a movement, you know, in DC that's been going on for a long time to get statehood. That's a little besides the point, but, sure. but really the point being what's going to be interesting is this is going to elevate death of dignity to the national level that uh, I don't think we've seen yes. since Brittany Menard's story. Cause Congress has to approve it then. Um, or they have the opportunity to, to veto it. it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, well, that's great. so, who knows what'll happen, but, yeah. uh, it, uh, I'm very, very happy, uh, and feeling optimistic about it. So that was one ballot initiative that we can celebrate that again, despite m- literally millions of dollars that the, that the church and other opposition groups put in, um, the voters overwhelmingly, uh, voted for it. And in Oklahoma, a deep red state where Trump won 65% of the vote, 56% of voters rejected SQ290, which is a ballot initiative that would have allowed taxpayer money to be used for religious purposes. Um, and so that really came out of the whole debacle about the Ten Commandments uh, monument in Oklahoma. Uh, and so they were trying to work around it. And uh, if I have this right, because I remember writing about this recently, the when the Supreme Court of Oklahoma said you can't put a Ten Commandments monument like outside the Capitol building, they said the state constitution has basically a church-state separation law, and they cited that, and this ballot initiative said, we're just going to remove that from the state constitution, and the ballot initiative that ended up winning said, no, you're not removing that from the state constitution. Exactly. And you know what? Again, I'm going to reiterate, this is Oklahoma, where Trump won the state. But the voters rejected the ballot initiative. And I think that that shows that there is definitely hope uh, to look look forward to. Um, and I also want to, you know, give uh, a hopeful look to the future. Um, listen, this uh, Tuesday night uh, is 
it was a, not a good day for secularists. Um, we know that, you know, the religious right won a major victory. They threw all their political muscle behind Trump and it paid off. And he adopted their policies on the campaign trail. That's, you know, including the repeal of the Johnson Amendment, passing the First Amendment Defense Act, sending taxpayer money to religious schools, appointing anti-justice, uh, anti-choice justices to the Supreme Court, banning an entire religious group from entering the United States, and, you know, not to mention the pledge he made, who knows what he meant when he said in October that to bring all Americans together, uh, he wants to bring them under one God. So <laughs> I'm not going to, you know, I'm not looking through rose water, uh, rose-colored glasses yeah. here. Yeah. We're definitely going to be on the defense and are going to have to hold the line for the next four years. But that said, the religious right won the battle, but they didn't win the war. And at the end of the day, the numbers uh, are on our side. Um, You know, we don't have all the numbers yet of the turnout, uh, but more than likely evangelicals came out in droves and the non-religious stayed home. And we know that our biggest challenge, which can be, uh, which we can overcome is turnout. Because when it comes to demographic changes, the religious right is losing and the the religiously unaffiliated is growing rapidly. And we know that, uh, it skews, uh, it's very high among, uh, young people. Um, you know, it's a cliche, but young people really are the future. They're the future constituency. We know that young people don't, uh, vote in as high numbers as older folks, but they'll get older and they, you know, (laughs) we'll, we'll start voting more. Uh, I guess, you know, when you start paying taxes, you have family, I guess you just start voting more. Um, but you know, they, millennials, 18 to 35 rejected Trump, uh, largely at about 65% not voting for Trump. Uh, it's the most secular generation this country has ever seen. 39% of, uh, uh, young adults between 18 to 35 are non-religious and that's not going to change. Um, and so, you know, as the largest now religious demographic and the fastest growing one in the country, Trump and the Republican party and the democratic party for that matter, can't afford to lose our votes next time around. And so, uh, what I'm saying is that the, the biggest challenge we have to overcome is turnout because the numbers and the demographic trends are very much in our favor, not in the favor of the religious right. We saw from the ballot initiatives um, and some wins from openly secular candidates at the state level that the religious right is not in the is, is not winning every battle. And even though they won this big one with the presidency and Congress, um, you know, Keep in mind that if we can increase our turnout, uh, we can make a huge difference and in, in, in the long run. And I'll say just one more thing to illustrate that point. In the last four elections, we were still, you know, need the numbers from this past one. Uh, the religiously unaffiliated uh, voter turnout was 12%. The evangelical vote beat us two to one. They're good at rallying their troops. We suck at rallying the troops. Right. But, you know, and and that's a challenge, but that's something we can overcome. There's not a whole, you know, there's only so much you can do to change the numbers on the ground of the demographics. That's, that's happening no matter what we do. I I sincerely, as a movement (laughs) is focus on turnout. I, I mean, I sincerely hope you're right. I felt that, I, I agree with you that the demographics and the changes on are on our side, but I thought they would come to a head on Tuesday. And if you can't get people excited and passionate enough to vote against their best interests, you know, against Donald Trump, who said all these crazy things, like what candidate is going to get them excited? I mean, and I mean that in the oppositional way, like if you can't cast a vote against someone like that, um, I don't know who will. So I, I thought it was going to happen already. Uh, now it looks like this hope that you have that I share with you that we may have to wait at least two more years, if not four. Um, and I would just add one more story. Uh, Sarah, I don't know uh, how old you are, but I know that I started getting interested in politics late in high school. And that was around 2000 when uh, George W. Bush won. And I remember like thinking, oh, that's probably not a good thing, but I couldn't even vote in that election. But then I got like super interested and I started following politics in the years to come. And I remember I was interning for the Center for Inquiry in like 2004. And, you know, this is a a progressive group of people that I was surrounded by. All the news that I was following was about, 
you know, how if George W. Bush gets elected again after all these things he has done so far, and this is after 9-11 and, and the war started, um, here we have a candidate who is against all that and he's going to be good for progressives. And it's like, it's, it felt like everyone around me was super into supporting John Kerry. They weren't necessarily excited about him. I mean, all the jokes people made where he's not really exciting, he's kind of boring. When you talk and you're imitating John Kerry, it's just like a long droll, droning, whatever. Um, but if you can't get excited to run against George W. Bush at that time, you know, what, what's wrong with you? Because look at all these things that he's doing that go against all these things progressives and church-state separation people tend to fight for. And then that election came around, Kerry lost. And it's like, what? how was I, I felt like I was living in a bubble. What country is this? I felt many of the same emotions that I felt now. But I will say this, as much as it sucked then, and it did feel like the end of the world to me anyway, back then, just like I see people feeling that way now, you know what happened in the next four years? I mean, people got energized to fight against that. They came out in droves for Obama in 08. Um, and I mean, we've seen so many progressive victories over the past eight years. Um, and part of that was the pushback to everything that's happening. So uh, whatever you think about, oh, Republicans have control of everything right now, that's not going to last because uh, it never does. It never did for Democrats. It never happened for Republicans either. And so, I mean, if you're looking for a silver lining, it's that even progressives have felt this way before, not too long ago. And yeah, Trump is a different story, but you know, if, if he lives up to those campaign promises, which is a big, if, uh, maybe people will finally get their heads straight and realize that they need to put a stop to it by voting against him. Um, so let me, I I, I just want to push back just a little bit on the assumption that, uh, uh, that people should be, you would think, you know, com- you, you would think that people would be motivated, uh, to vote in s- to someone that's, that they, t- they see as an egregious candidate. But I actually think that, um, that when people are so frustrated with their options, that can really depress voter turnout. And, and it, it's not, it's not like, I think Obama's uh, run showed that when people feel really positively and feel really inspired, that that will turn people out. But the opposite is not necessarily true. I don't think that when people are particularly uh, disgusted or fearful or, uh, you know, think a candidate is egregious doesn't mean that they're just as energized uh, to come out to vote. Uh, That can actually, I think, depress the vote, especially considering how much we've seen, um, uh, the distrust of institutions yeah. in this election yeah. on both sides, uh, from everything from the media to, uh, you know, polls and, um, you know, our election system. And, you know, a lot of people on both sides were, were frustrated with the candidate that they ended up with. And so I think that factoring in the kind of anti-establishment and distrust of our most basic institutions um, really did play into uh, the lack of voter turnout. Sure. We got to give them someone to vote for, not just someone to vote against. And I think if uh, my memory has me right, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I think like Obama won either in 08 or 12 with like 70 million votes and Hillary Clinton this time around, even though she won the popular vote, she only had like 55 or 56 million. I mean, it, so the voter turnout on both sides was far lower than anyone expected it to be. So yeah, you're right to make that point. If we're not giving uh, a candidate, uh, Democrats were not overly enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton. I was thinking, well, they still got to be overly opposed to Donald Trump. It didn't work out that way. So fair point. Um, Let me, let me go back and let's talk about some of the, the, the downsides that some of the bigger church state separate uh, separation issues we're going to see over the next few years. And then we'll go back to some of the good stuff. Uh, you mentioned it, but let's talk about the Johnson amendment. What is it? What did Trump say about it? And what do you think is going to happen? So this is something we're really concerned about. Um, the Johnson amendment is basically a, a law passed by Congress that prohibited, um, 501c3 nonprofit organizations, and that means a it means it's a nonprofit that when you give them money, it's tax deductible. That's important. It uh, the Johnson Amendment prevents uh, 501c3 nonprofits 
from endorsing candidates for office and has, you know, restrictions on how they can um, influence elections. And the, the point that's important to understand is that tax-exempt status is a privilege, not a right. When, when what Donald Trump wants to do, uh, what he said he would do on the campaign trail, is to repeal the Johnson Amendment. Now, first of all, the president isn't the person to repeal an amendment Congress is, but we have an overwhelmingly Republican Congress. Um, and you know, Republicans are not a monolith, but with, you know, a Republican president, um, who, who called for the repeal of the Johnson amendment. Um, and it's, it's much more likely, uh, that it will, that it, that it could be repealed. And what that would mean, first of all, it would not just apply to churches, it would apply to all 501c3 nonprofits. Um, but the problem is that, churches and religious, you know, houses of worship already have a special privilege in the tax code that they do not have to file what's called the Form 990. All 501c3 nonprofits have to file a Form 990, which basically uh, gives the taxpayers some basic level of transparency of how they're getting their money and how they're spending it. Um, Because again, they have to prove that they are worthy of the privilege of having a tax-exempt status because, you know, tax dollars are a valuable asset for how we pay for things like the military and our roads. Um, And so they have to prove that they are actually uh, being charitable and that they're not uh, violating the rules. We have no way to account for whether religious institutions, houses, houses of worship are actually following those rules because they don't have to file the same form that everybody else does. And so if, if the Johnson amendment is repealed, I mean, it's a whole nother issue, what that's going to do about 501c3s in general, getting involved in elections. But the reason it's particularly concerning about houses of worship is that if the Johnson amendment is repealed, that means that churches can have their tax exempt status not have to report where their money's coming in or, or going out and are legally allowed to do whatever they want in terms of influencing elections, endorsing candidates for office. What that's going to do is make houses of worship uh, centers of dark money going into politics that we will, the taxpayers will have no way to track. And essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, in theory, if the Johnson Amendment was repealed, uh, the Republican National Committee could give loads of money to some of the biggest mega churches in the country saying, look what we're doing for you. Like, we want you to endorse our candidate explicitly for the next election. We would never know where that money's coming from. The pastor could say you should all vote for this candidate, which they can't do right now legally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be total. And they get to keep their tax exemption. That would be absolutely correct. So that's not good. That's not good. Okay. So that is something uh, Trump said right now on the campaign trail. He kept telling all these pastors when he met with them. He he said this on the campaign trail. Churches, the pastors are being stifled in their freedom of speech. So we need to repeal the Johnson Amendment so they can recapture their freedom of speech, which was silly because they they can do whatever they want right now. They can say whatever they want. They don't have to have a tax-exempt status if they don't want to. They want to preach from the pulpit and talk about what, you know, be my guest, you know, talk about whatever you want, but that doesn't entitle you to a tax exempt status. Okay. And so the question now is, will Trump follow through with that? And what challenges will happen if he actually does that? Because I I don't think he knows. Well, I don't think he knows a lot of things. I don't think he knows the (laughs) consequences. I don't think he knows the consequences of what would happen. And to that point, Hammond, this is what really scares me is that I really get the feeling that this was not exactly something Trump had thought about before. And this is, this is uh, probably top of the list of the policy wish list of the religious right. This is clearly something that, uh, they got out of endorsing him. Um, and because they directly, they directly benefit. Um, and they've been talking about this for a long time. Um, you, you might've heard of pulpit freedom Sunday, which happens every year where they encourage, uh, uh, churches to, uh, endorse candidates for office, um, outright. And they, and they do it, um, because, um, even though it is illegal, uh, the additional problem is that, um, it is pretty much the IRS is pretty much set up to make it almost impossible uh, to have a house of worship in, uh, 
investigated. So they already violate the law, but at least the law is in place. Uh, And the IRS has been to get rid of it entirely. The IRS has been sued over this. And they basically said, no, seriously, we will start taking the law seriously from now on. Like, don't sue us. Um, But they haven't really done anything like, no, I don't remember reading any stories about a house of worship that had its tax exemption revoked after a pastor endorsed a candidate. Uh, So it's not like the IRS is doing what it's supposed to do. And by the way, like you said, all of these churches and every nonprofit you could think of can already say uh, we ought to vote for a candidate who is pro-life or, you know, supporting abortion. They could could talk about the issues, which is why they rail against homosexuality or, or gay marriage or what have you. They can already do that. But what they can't say is, you should all go out and vote for Donald Trump because God wants you to. But that's right. kind of what they want to do in a lot of places. Okay, so that's the Johnson Amendment. That's a big problem that Trump has already said he wants to get rid of if he could. Um, there was another issue that came up that I didn't know too much about, which was a school voucher issue. What is it that Trump wants to do about these? Um, so uh, Trump, I, I really, I'm sorry, I don't have the number in front of me, but basically, uh, he talked about having a, uh, national, uh, voucher program, uh, where, I mean, this is, we, we've seen attempts to do this in, in Congress before, uh, where basically, uh, instead it would, what it would essentially do is take just millions of uh, dollars away from public education and favor a system where parents just get a voucher, uh, you know, where they can decide where from the government and then they can just decide where they want to send their kids. And that can include a religious school. And so that means public money, taxpayer dollars, uh, would be given directly to parents, uh, to fund, uh, uh, religious education. Um, I, I, I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but it, but in, in the details, but that's, that's essentially the, the basics okay. of it. Okay. I want to go rapid fire. Cause I know, uh, we're already like running out of time, but I want to run through some of this stuff. He's also advocated a ban on Muslims, which should, I mean, as, as immigrants coming in, what have you, Let's talk about the religious discrimination issue, because uh, no matter what you think about uh, terrorism, what role Islam has to play in that, this is kind of horrifying that he's saying, I'm going to basically say yes or no to whether you can enter the country based on what's going on in your mind, uh, what you think about God. Uh, How does is that something the secular coalition is worried about? And how how should atheists? I mean, how does that affect us, I guess? Well, any time that uh, a religious te- there's a advocate, someone is advocating for a religious test, it hurts non-religious. It doesn't matter who the religious test is against. It could be against evangelicals for all we care. You know, and any any religious test is bad for non-theists because you know we all lose out when the government is able to administer any kind of religious test, um, and so. We were just as concerned uh, as as uh, anybody else, and in, in about the ad, uh, Trump's advocacy for a ban on Muslims. Because if you can have a ban on Muslims, you can have a ban on atheists, and you can have a ban on Jews. It it, it really it's it's about the principle of of a religious test, um, and and it's unconstitutional. I don't think he would be able to. I mean, you can't even practically really enforce that because you, like you said, you don't know what are, what's in people's minds. But what you can do is you can get around it by basically banning. Sp- people from specific countries that are, uh, majority Muslim, um, and just base it on, on the country, uh, and say, well, you know, we're going to call this too high risk of a country and we're just going to not accept, you know, the, yeah. he can do that, uh, which is essentially the same thing. Um, and, and really on that issue, the damage has already been done because, uh, to in any way give, uh, a sense of legitimacy to a religious test, in a country that was founded by people fleeing religious persecution. Um, I'm, it, it's interesting. It's interesting to note the treaty of Tripoli, which, which, uh, explicitly says, uh, that we're not a Christian nation that was signed uh, early on. I think one of the first treaties signed with a Muslim nation. It was uh, signed with, <laughs> signed by, uh, our founders, uh, with the leaders of, um, Tripoli in Libya. <laughs> so, um, it's, it, I, I, so in short, I don't, he can't actually enforce what he said he is going to enforce, uh, directly, but, but he will be able to, um, as president, uh, keep people who, uh, come from Muslim majority countries from coming in on that basis. 
one of the arguments I heard, uh, I think Sam Harris tweeted this on election night, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, that one of the ironies of this election is that 81% of evangelical voters supported a candidate who is an atheist. Now, I don't agree, uh, and I wrote about this, that I don't think Donald Trump is an atheist because I don't think he thinks about this stuff. He's apathetic (laughs) about religion. But here's a question. Donald Trump may say what he wants to say on the campaign trail. You can argue, we can all debate about whether or not he means any of it, and we're going to find out soon enough. But I don't think anyone has any doubt that Vice President-elect Mike Pence is super uh, religious right, uh, evangelical, conservative Christian. What role... How much influence do you think he's going to have on the policies that Donald Trump puts forward or wants Congress to put forward? He's going to have a lot of influence. Um, For example, um, I think we just learned that uh, Pence is going to have a really um, influential role on the transition team um, and, and on the domestic policy agenda for the first hundred days. And if you just look at, um, who, um, who uh, Trump is appointing to the transition team. We've got um, leaked documents that suggest that Ken Blackwell, now again, these are leaked documents, so it still has to be confirmed, that Ken Blackwell, who's a senior fellow at the Family Research Council, um, is playing a key role in Trump's transition team uh, to work on his domestic policy. Um, he's also, I, I'm sure you've heard Trump has uh, selected a, a climate change denier to lead his transition team to the environmental protection agency uh, um and ben uh, carson secretary of education yeah uh, so ben creationist carson is, for, is possible candidate for secretary of education or secretary of health and human services this is oh a person who's a young earth creationist and believes that the pyramids were built by the <laughs> biblical joseph to store grain obviously um and so you know regard it doesn't really at the end of the day regardless of what trump actually believes and thinks the people that he appoints to these positions and their worldview is very telling of the direction of his administration. Um, and I think that there's no doubt in my mind that Mike Pence believes, uh, these kinds of things. And, um, I, I think it's, um, I think it's safe to say that he's going to play a major role considering that he has a lot more experience, uh, in governance, uh, as an advisor to Trump and is going to have a, a, a significant influence on the direction of the administration. Um, progressives may have lost the Supreme Court for a good generation because they didn't come out to vote. But uh, what are there big super, uh, church-state separation cases we are expecting to see on the Supreme Court's docket? Let's assume uh, we get a nine-judge bench that can actually decide things. And let's assume that's a, a conservative that Trump ends up putting on there. And maybe he replaces one of the liberals on the court or something. What are the big uh, cases that may come to them in the next few years? So one thing that we're still that's still kind of in limbo because uh, it was kind of kicked back to uh, kicked back to the lower courts because of the four four split was the Zubik case. And just as a refresher, it's kind of like the comeback of Hobby Lobby to haunt us. Um, Hobby Lobby was the case that essentially ruled that employers of a certain size can actually impose their religious beliefs on their employees by refusing to provide certain types of uh, birth control that was mandated by the Affordable Care Act in the insurance plans for their employees. Um, Hobby Lobby was a craft store that happened to be owned by uh, Christians who didn't want their employees to have access to certain types of birth control. Um, The we unfortunately lost that case uh, in a 5-4 decision. And what that means uh, is is that it really set the precedent uh, and opened the floodgates for religious organizations to use, uh, you know, a burden, so-called burden on their religious beliefs um, to get out of any generally applicable law that applies to everybody else. But they can say, well, this is, you know, a burden on our beliefs. So what happened after Hobby Lobby was the Obama administration came up with an accommodation and said, look, okay, so you don't want to provide this kind of birth control in your insurance plans because it, you know, you object. Okay, fine. We're going to give you this form. You're going to say, we object to, you know, this, this, and this, and you're going to submit it. And then 
the Department of Health and Human Services, you know, by signing this form, you'll trigger the government coming in and providing that service so that you don't have to do it directly. So it was kind of a compromise of, you know what, it's against your religious beliefs, fine, the government will provide it if you just tell us, you know, that you object on religious grounds. Zubik uh, was a case that was brought forth where basically uh, religious organizations said that this is not enough. The accommodation is not enough because they were arguing in Zubik that by signing that paper, by filling out the paperwork and saying we object to this, you know, provision in the Affordable Care Act, that they are therefore triggering someone being able to get birth control, and that is too much of a burden on their religious beliefs. Literally, just signing a piece of paper. And the irony of this is that they're arguing that an expression of their religious belief is a burden on their religious beliefs. Um, and uh, that that's a major case. If 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 uh, the result is that uh, if it's ruled in their favor, we have a huge problem. What it means is that. Any law that a religious organization doesn't like, they can just say, this is an undue burden on my religious beliefs and get out of it. Because if signing a piece of paper saying you object to something, providing certain types of insurance is, is enough to get out of uh, the law, then, then there's no limit to it. So that was kicked down back to the courts. And basically the court said, see, come back to us. Um, and see if you have any suggestions of ways we can compromise. That's like the kind of layman's terms of what they said is, you know, to both sides, come, come back to us and, and see if you can come up with any solutions. Um, and really is just them kicking it down the road because it was such a major decision and they were missing a Supreme Court justice. Did they ever decide on a compromise? Um, my understanding is that both sides came back and said, they're still compromised. There's no way to, we can't compromise any further. Um, which I think is to be expected. Um, so until we get another justice, they're not going to settle this. And if that justice happens to be conservative, then we may have lost a big case here. Yes. Okay. Um, let me ask you, let's, let's, (laughs) let's spend at least 30 seconds talking about some of the good stuff that happened on Tuesday. Um, let me ask you, are there, as far as we know, any open atheists in the new Congress coming up? Um, in the Congress, we have an open humanist, uh, Jamie Raskin. Is he open about it? Because I've gone back and forth in my own like articles about this. I thought he was an open humanist and he just got elected from Maryland. But then the Washington Post said, oh, so you're like, you're a humanist. And he said, nope. He walked back and he says he's Jewish. They called him an atheist and he said, I'm not an atheist. I'm a humanist. Um, And I think we need to respect (laughs) that. Listen, there is, um, you know, such a why there's a diverse spectrum of non-theism and including, um, you know, religious humanism. Uh, We have member organizations uh, like the American Ethical Union and the Society for Humanistic Judaism and the Unitarian Universalist Humanists who um, don't see, uh, don't, don't identify exactly the same way that atheists, uh, you know, who might be more, uh, you know, feel more at home with American atheists or freedom from religious foundation. They, they don't necessarily identify the same way, uh, or, or want the same things from, uh, from their respective, uh, communities. And I think that's fine. You know, in my view, when it comes to, um, religious identity, we're talking about how people relate to the universe and the big questions and, and, uh, you know, we're asking them for how, what identity best describes how, how they relate to those things. And that's very, very different for every single person you talk to. And so there's no one size fits all. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm someone who, if someone, as someone who has, been told by both Jewish people and non-Jewish people that I'm not Jewish because I'm not religious. I am Mm -hmm. really, um, not about telling people what they are and what they aren't. If someone tells me I'm, I'm not an atheist, I'm a humanist. That's how I identify. You got to respect that because at the end of the day, what I care about and what we care about, and, and trust me, I, I I do think we need more openly non-theistic, um, members of Congress, but at the same time, uh, if we have just more allies, you know, people of faith who 
support separation of church and state who are on our side, who are willing to stick up for the non-religious, um, that's great in my book. Right. And I, I want to make very clear, I'm so thrilled that Raskin won. And you're right. I mean, he is a progressive, as far as I can tell, in every sense of the word. What I'm arguing is purely a symbolic thing. Um, I guess my question, if I may rephrase it, when the uh, when the numbers come out and like the Pew Research Center always puts out, you know, the religious makeup of the new Congress, as far as I can tell, they are going to say there are no atheists in Congress um, Kirsten Cinema from Arizona, who got reelected, is probably the only person who says, like, uh, I am not answering that question, basically. She's unaffiliated, but she doesn't go one way or the other, according to the label. Um, and as far as I know, Jamie Raskin's going to say he's Jewish, whether he's religious or non-religious, whatever. But he's, he's going to say he's Jewish, which means that at least on paper, there will be no open non-theistic members of Congress, which, again, purely symbolically, that's disappointing. But yes, there are progressives uh, on our side here. Uh, but I would say there, uh, when it comes to state houses, I, I can at least now name two state senators who are openly atheist, which is uh, twice as many as we had before. Um, Ernie There's Chambers from Nebraska. At least 11 yeah. who won. Uh, and they're, you know, a variety of identities, but they are largely openly non-theistic. And that ranges from, you know, the usual suspects of Washington and Oregon uh, but and Vermont. But we also had wins in Wisconsin, which, remember, lost, you know, in, yeah. in states that where Trump won, we have uh, we have openly non-theistic uh, state representatives yeah. in Wisconsin, in Nebraska, in Arizona, New Hampshire. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, That's if exciting. we want to have more members of Congress, I mean, it, it's, it's great to start with, uh, state legislators because, you know, uh, a lot of people s- stay in public service. And so I think it's an impor- important, important yeah. for non-religious people who live in those states where they have non-theistic, uh, uh, openly non-theistic, elected officials to reach out to them, let them know, uh, you know, Hey, I'm a secular constituent and, you know, congratulations. And, you know, if, if you're, if you watch what they do and you, you like, uh, the job that they do in the, in the state house and the state Senate, um, for all, you know, they might run for Congress one day and, and maybe we should be there to support them Absolutely. Uh, maybe in the midterms, who knows? Uh, so I, I would advise people who live in those States and you can actually check out, um, these folks on secularvaluesvoter.org. Uh, we have a page for uh, the openly secular candidates. You know, check out who won in your state and keep an eye on them because they might just run for Congress one day. That is awesome. And awesome. just to finish that one thought, Ernie Chambers is a state senator who's been there forever in Nebraska. He got reelected. And uh, uh, Juan Mendez, who was a state representative in Arizona, just got elected to the state Senate there. And he's open about his atheism, too. So that's very exciting. Um let me, uh, and by the way, I should mention one more thing, which is that as far as I could tell, and I was trying to keep track of it, but there were at least two dozen open atheists, humanists, whatever label they wanted to use, but they don't believe in God, who were running for state office or federal office this That's year. Cool. That is so much more uh, by like a huge multiplier than I've ever seen before. So uh, that is good news for the future. Right. And, and I want to add to that, that, you know, I can understand uh, being bummed out that we don't have, uh, we can't necessarily on paper say we have a member of Congress who's openly non-religious. And I don't want to downplay the importance of, of having, you know, if we should have a representative Congress, if we have 25% religiously unaffiliated Americans, we should have at least somewhat close to that. <laughs> uh, and we have a long way to go. But I think it's important to keep in mind how, important state legislatures are because there are issues that are only state issues that are state by state that the federal government doesn't even have the authority uh to to legislate and so you know we're going to have to hold the line and we're going to be on the defense uh in in dc but uh, there are still great opportunities to make a difference on and promote secular policy at the state level. And if there's one thing we know uh, Republicans definitely want to do, it's giving more power to the states as much as they can. And so, yeah, the more atheists you have, and I mean, progressives in general, I, the label doesn't matter. It's just symbolic, but it's nice to have uh, that the better, <laughs> off, the better <laughs> off we are. Yeah. Um, give me that one. 
<laughs> one one last question for you. As atheists, as humanists, what can we do to for, for 2018, for 2020, what have you? Because you mentioned this at the beginning, our turnout is pathetic, at least compared to, you know, evangelical Christians who come out in full force as much as they, they can, as much as any demographic does. They come out. They know the stakes. We seem to be more apathetic than other groups. What do we do to raise the turnout? Because I know not all atheists are going to vote for the Democrat. Um, believe me, if there's one downside to being free thinkers and, and open-mindedness is that if I tell you go vote for a Democrat, they're just going to give me the middle finger. It's happened many times uh, on the show, on the blog, whatever. But how do we, if, but if we increase the turnout, I feel that there's a better likelihood we're going to get progressive candidates and I don't care if they're religious or not. How do we increase that turnout? What do we do as non-theists to, to improve that? Well, I think um, this is a conversation that's going to be happening uh, with our member organizations, uh, you know, in the coming weeks of how we can really come together as a coalition to to make this a priority. Uh, I think it has to be a movement-wide priority uh, that is is not just top down with the national organizations saying, "Hey guys, you got to vote. Let's let's do registration drives. Let's talk about this." But I think that local secular communities and leaders who are listening to this, please make this a priority. Dedicate a meeting, dedicate several meetings to talk about um, why voter turnout is important. You know, you, I think that the, it's the leaders on the ground who lead their various secular communities uh, who are in touch with uh, uh, you know, other secular people in their lives. Uh, you guys, you you guys are the best people to talk to your friends and your peers about how they feel about voting, um, and and you're the ones who can best influence them. You know the people who you because you're the one that they interact with. You know I can you know yell until I'm blue in the face about how important this is, but you know your friend who's secular who didn't vote in the last election um, is probably going to be more influenced by you than by me. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's really up to individuals and especially, uh, organizers, um, to make this a priority, dedicate a meeting, um, and, uh, maybe figure, maybe do voter registration drives and, and make that something that, uh, that your group does in the midterm elections. Um, as far as, uh, something else that we, that we're working on at the national level, um, I, I'm not sure if I got a chance to, uh, speak about it with you, Hemant, but, uh, in June, uh, we had a major first where we had uh, the first ever uh, secular caucus at a major political party convention in Texas, of all places. So we had a secular caucus uh, at the Texas Democratic Convention. It was standing room only, hundreds of people. And the next day after the caucus, three of the resolutions that we submitted, these are policy proposals for the platform, were officially incorporated into the Texas Democratic Party's platform and that it included uh, among a few other things uh, a call to repeal the religious test in the Texas constitution which isn't enforceable but is still kind of a symbolic uh, you know outdated uh, discriminatory language that we want to get rid of that was a big deal that, that was is. the first time we've ever done anything like that and I raise it now because you're asking me what we can do this is something that can be replicated in every state across the political spectrum and the secular coalition is a nonpartisan organization and I if you are listening to this and you are a secular libertarian, you're a secular Democrat, secular Green, or a secular Republican, especially if you're a secular Republican, um, please reach out to us because what we're doing is we're the way we, we were successful in Texas is by working with people who are on the ground, who are involved in the party, who happen to be secular. And this is, I mean, th this is how things get done. And so if you're involved in the party, uh, or, or you want to see a change in your party and you feel like you're not uh, getting heard, uh, especially if you're a conservative uh, Republican who believes in separation of church and state, it's up to people like you to carve out a space for yourself in your party. And we can provide the resources. We can support you, uh, help you form a caucus, help you submit planks, help you pro provide materials to educate your local and state party leadership about the secular constituency and why it's growing, why it's important for them to reach out. 
um, and and all that kind of stuff. But there's nothing we can replace. Uh, we we can't replace boots on the ground. We need the boots on the ground. So so that's that's something that people can do is if they're already involved or if they're willing to get involved um, to partner with us to carve out the space for more openly non-theistic and secular candidates in your party and get leadership to recognize you as a constituency within the party. I, the only thing I, I absolutely agree. The only thing I would add to that, uh, I don't understand the argument that I have heard from some atheists online, which is that, okay, I don't believe in God and that is where my atheism ends. And that just seems so pointless then. Like, who cares if you're an atheist, if you don't care about church-state separation, if you don't care about the religious right using religious beliefs to influence politics and policy? We suck as a community, a loosely not-held-together community, at getting people interested in our issues, which really ought to be America's issues, separation of church and state and whatnot, if we can't get involved in politics by running for local state offices, if we can't get interested by, you know, doing voter uh, participating in voter registration drives or joining up with the groups who do because you're an atheist and your values, whatever they are, you know, urge you to do that because you're, if you're not going to do it, the religious right will, and they have, and they continue to do it. And all the talks about how the demographic de- demographics are shifting and, you know, the religious right's going to go away soon. Guess what? It didn't happen this year. Um, and I, I thought it would. It didn't. And so if we don't get our act together, it's just going to keep happening. Um, and, you know, if you want to complain about it, then do something about it. So, yeah, uh, fully agree with you. Sarah, thank you for... Uh, I took up way too much of your time. Thank you for uh, enlightening us on these issues. And the best way for people to keep track of you know, these sorts of issues and everything you do, where should they go if they want to learn more about the Secular Coalition and the work you guys are doing? Thank you for asking. Uh, You can go to www.secular.org, sign up for the newsletter uh, so that you get uh, our uh, updates on what's going on, church-state separation, Uh, but most importantly, sign up for action alerts. Action alerts are the bread and butter of our advocacy. Uh, I, I always tell people I can call your member of Congress till I'm blue in the face, but they need to hear from their constituents. We make it super, super easy uh, to send a, a message to your member of Congress, and trust me, they read it. Uh, so sign up for action alerts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, uh, and check out secularvaluesvoter.org to, fig- uh, to find out how you can get more involved as a voter. And I would just throw in there, make a donation to the Secular Coalition because they do a lot of good work. Uh, Sarah, Thanks for doing my job for me. <laughs> absolutely. <could> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, there, there's reason to be hopeful even uh, after a really crappy week. Uh, thanks again, Sarah. Appreciate it. Thanks, Emmett, for having me.